It was a very pleasant sport of these beasts to see the bear with his pink eyes leering after his enemy's approach, the nimbleness and wit of the dog to take his advantage, and the force and experience of the bear again to avoid the assaults. If he were bitten in one place, how he would pinch in another to get free. That if he were taken once, then what shift with biting, with clawing, with roaring, tossing and tumbling, he would work to wind himself free from them. And when he was loose to shake his ears twice or thrice with the blood and the slather about his physiognomy was a matter of goodly relief. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And Ian, I'm so excited because today we have our first guest ever. Caitlin Mahaffey is a postdoctoral teaching fellow in early modern studies here at Utah State University. And she's going to be talking to us a little bit about her work on bear baiting. And I just want to warn some of our more sensitive listeners that this is a tough topic. Um, and if you are not comfortable with it, you should probably tune out now. It's, it's also a topic that is very much still with us today, as I'm sure Caitlin will tell us at some point. Absolutely. This is our first of the animal studies experts that we said we'd be bringing you. Yes, and I want to start by turning to Caitlin and asking you a little bit about that passage you just read. What is that a description of? So it's a description of the sport of bear baiting. So the premise of bear baiting, particularly Elizabethan bear baiting, was that you would tie a bear to a stake or some kind of pole, and then you would invite the dogs. You'd have a, a group of dogs, usually mastiffs or old English bulldogs, which are now extinct, but they're the precursor to the current English bulldogs. Um, and they would be kind of trained to attack the bear. And spectators would come and watch the dogs fight with the bear, and it would become increasingly violent. The bear would be trying to defend itself. It wasn't unusual that a dog or two would be killed in the process. And it was great entertainment in Elizabethan and Jacobean England. Um, you know, it actually started earlier than that. It started to become popular in England in the late Middle Ages and wasn't actually outlawed until the 1830s. But its prime time, as it were, was the early modern period, the Renaissance. And it was great entertainment. Anybody from Queen Elizabeth to, you know, the common man enjoyed coming to watch a bear baiting. Uh, there were gardens, uh, bear baiting pits. They called them bear gardens, where spectators would come and watch the spectacle of the bear fighting the dogs. So that's what's described here is a, a spectacle in which the bear is tied to the stake and is fighting these aggressive bulldogs and mastiffs because that's what those animals are trained to do. It's really kind of horrific. Um, and it reminds me maybe a little bit of Roman blood sports, you know, gladiatorial mm -hmm. combats, um, yeah. staged contests between various predatory animals yeah. or animals and humans. Is there any relationship between um, Renaissance bear baiting and Roman blood sports? 
So my sense, and I've, I've looked into this because it was an interesting topic to me too. You can't help but see the parallels between <clears throat> Roman blood sports and Elizabethan bear baiting, especially because it really wasn't just bear baiting. Bear baiting is our focus today, but it seems important to mention that the pits also involved other animals sometimes in Elizabethan England. So you might have a bull baiting where the bull is tied up and the dogs are attacking the bull, or there was a case where there was an ape once. They brought in an ape that had to defend itself. Um, so the variety of animals puts me in mind of the Roman gladiator fights as well. Uh, but that said, I, I don't know that there's a direct relationship between the two. I think this is certainly Elizabethan and Jacobean England's response to the gladiator fights, but I don't know that they were interested in bear baiting because they wanted to emulate the Romans in some way or there was some direct connection. I, I've never really found evidence of that. I know from researching dogs in the period that the bears had names. They're often like yes. listed by names, which yeah. suggests that they might have survived for some time. And I've always wondered, in, especially in comparison to the Roman arenas, which were primarily about the death of animals, whether these bears, you know, how long did the bears survive? How bloody and deadly was it for the bears, for the dogs? Mm -hmm. Like, what was the expected outcome? So that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, yes, there were named bears, a lot of named bears, actually. They kind of had a celebrity status, some of them. So there's a very famous one called Sackerson, who actually comes up in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor. There's a reference to the bear, which I think is interesting because theater was, we can talk about that in a few minutes, but theater is the other major entertainment that was in the same part of London that bear baiting took place in at that time. But yes, the bears are named. So Sackerson was one of them. Monsieur Hunks was one of them. Um, you know, they have some funny names. George Stone was one of them. It goes on and on. There's a long list. They did live a long time. It's a little bit unclear how long, but long enough that, you know, you'd read a pamphlet from, you know, 1580 that had Sackerson in it, and then another one from seven years later or 10 years later that mentioned Sackerson again. It's possible that there could be more than one Sackerson, but I kind of, I kind of don't know how I feel about that. I think it's possibly the same bear. So, it seems like a pretty long life for the bears. The bears, I know, were more expensive to get. They were more difficult to get, so they were more valuable. Whereas the dogs, this is the more unfortunate part. I mean, it's all unfortunate, but the dogs were the ones that were expendable. So the dogs would be killed in the fights with some regularity and just immediately replaced with other dogs. You know, sometimes they were difficult to get to, but not nearly as difficult to get as the bears. So they were expendable. The bears were like celebrities. They almost never died in the fights and they were well known, well known enough that they get mentioned in contexts outside of bear baiting a lot. Shakespeare's play is an example. A lot of early modern pamphlets refer to specific bears, even if they're talking about life in London and the pamphlet isn't all about bear baiting. Bear baiting was so popular that it comes up in that context sometimes and you'll see the named bears referenced in there. So they were almost like celebrities, really. Caitlin, Do you mentioned that the bears were very expensive. Um, yeah. where, did, where did they come from? Like, how did you get a bear? I know that bears basically went extinct in England either sometime in the, you know, Neolithic or maybe in the first millennium um, after Christ. So where are these bears coming from? 
Well, they're imported. It's not always clear when you read the, the pamphlets exactly what countries they're coming from, but they're imported from other countries. Like one pamphlet I was reading indicated that some of them had come from Scandinavia, that they were brought in. Mm. Um, so they're imported from places that still had bearers around Europe. So Scandinavia was the most specific one that I found, but they're coming. That's why they're expensive. They're coming from places that are not not the UK. Um, and I think that's kind of striking. It means that the bears were obviously the more valuable performer, certainly. So it's not that dogs were never valuable, though. Like, there is an episode that comes up in one of uh, Philip Henslow's notes where he was in charge of James I's bears. I mean, actually, bear, bear baiting was so popular that James I had some bears that were technically his. Um, he had a, a kind of company of people who kept charge of his bears. And uh, Philip Henslow writes a letter to someone who works under him because Philip Henslow was in charge of those bears. And he says, we need more bears and we need more bears. and We need more dogs. We're actually running low on dogs. So there's a note that says that somebody who works under him has to go and find more dogs. So to run low on bears would be a disaster, but to run low on dogs was a problem that was fixable, but occasionally an issue, it seems. Mm. So, you know, all of the animals were valuable to an extent, but the bears were especially valuable because they were imported. The one I read about came from Sweden. So Do we have any evidence that the bears of, of uh, sort of veterinary care for the bears? Because if mm. after all, they're getting wounded all the time, the passage you read suggests that there's blood, yeah. infections... Uh, it's a killer. And I just wonder, there's so much attention to the medical treatment of other uh, domestic animals, horses yeah. and in the literature. But what about the bears? You know, that's another thing that um, it, it's come up kind of sparingly in a few of the texts that I've read. I read a, a secondary text by someone called Andreas Hoffel. It's a book called Stage, Stake and Scaffold, which is about bear baiting in large part. And he does talk about how there was veterinary care for bears, but um, they didn't care as much about the dogs. So I, I, it, there's not a lot of detail there, but it, it suggests that I think it's the same level of vet care that you might give a horse or a domestic animal. It seems like the bears were prioritized in such a way that they were receiving similar care um, because they were, their wounds were healed after the fights, or if it was significant, they would be healed after the fights. Um, so, you know, the bears, they suffered injuries in all different kinds of ways, too. You know, they would be attacked by dogs. Sometimes people went into the arena and the bear would be tied up and they would whip the bear. Elizabethan audiences found that really interesting and enchanting for some reason. So there were there were people that came in and took care of the bears. I'm not sure that that's true for the dogs. I've really never seen any evidence of that. But um, I, I don't know exactly what specific kinds of care it would have been like i don't think it was i think it would have been on par with what you would use to take care of your horse like a vet that would come in to take care of a horse or mm. take care of a domestic beast I, I think they treated the bears kind of like a domestic beast because it was valuable um so better vet care than for the dogs i know that you know you've been talking about these bear baiting pits in london and yeah i wonder i mean what is it about england and the late medieval, early modern period. Is this a purely English phenomenon? I know that bullfighting, for example, continued in Western Europe, despite yeah. um, Byzantine imperial edicts against blood sports. Charlemagne supposedly was a big yeah. fan of the bullfight. Yeah. Um, but but you, I don't think I know of any other instances of 
bear baiting outside of England? What what is it about England and bears? Well, that's a really good question too. I've always thought about this because England does have the strongest association with bear baiting. Not that other places have never done it. Some places continue to do it, but bear baiting is, you know, an English, we think of it as an English phenomenon in some ways. And I wonder, this in some ways is, is not exactly the answer that I, I wish I could give because it's not very specific, but it feels right to me somehow. I think England was really interested in blood sports during the Elizabethan and Jacobean eras. I think they were really, the English people were really entertained by that. The reason I don't love that answer is that so were a lot of other places, but there are some specific kinds of blood sports that I think were interesting to the English at that time. They seem to have really liked violent animal sports. They loved watching executions, um, which in a way is a kind of performance. And they enjoyed bloody spectacle on stage. I, I was just reading an article that suggested that Elizabethan audiences would have enjoyed a production of Titus Andronicus more than we currently do, that they their you know sensibilities wouldn't have been as offended. So for some reason, the reason I don't love this answer is I feel like a lot of cultures enjoy bloody sports, but it seems to me that Renaissance England really, really enjoyed bloody sports. And, you know, I think the executions are an example if we can consider them at least a performance, if not a sport. Um, but they loved, they loved the bear baiting pits. They loved bloody plays. They just loved blood and carnage. So I don't know that that makes it specifically English, but it does kind of fit into what the English seemed to like at that time, I think. As a medievalist, I just want to jump in here because, you know, when people say that things got really ugly, things got really violent, they say things got medieval. I just I just want to provide a little corrective to our audience. Like, I think you should say things got really Elizabethan yes. at this moment. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I agree. I agree. I really, I'm quite fascinated by the Middle Ages and I've done some research there too. And I think the Elizabethans are far more brutal, really. Do we have evidence from, or sort of reports from the audience, like more passages like, say, the one you began with, that give yeah. us any window into what spectators, like how they understood what they were getting from this love of the spectacle? Yes. In fact, the more striking pamphlets, though, pamphlets are typically how people, those are, how, that's how we see the reactions. Uh, letters, pamphlets, you know, people wrote up documents during the time period to express their views on bear baiting. And there are documents that are, are much like the first piece that, that I read at the start of the podcast that suggests that it was really entertaining, that everyone enjoys bear baiting, that it's, you know, great fun. But I think the more interesting documents are the ones, and there are a lot of them, that are actually speaking out against the sport. There are some pretty prominent examples of that. Uh, there's the pamphlet by Donald Lupton, in which he's not so much offended by the, the act of bear baiting, the actual sport, but he's offended by the people who attend the sport. He describes them as, I think he says they're more like a wilderness than a city, that they're more suited for a wilderness than a city um, because the bear baiting brings out their own aggressiveness. You know, they're all gambling at the sport. They're not behaving in a suitably pious way. I think Donald Lupton was a bit pious. Um, you know, he was a religious sort of fellow. So he 
criticizes the people who go to the sport because he's, he thinks it's bringing out their lack of morals somehow. So there are the religious sorts that were detractors. Then there are actually people who really didn't like what was happening to the animals too. And, and one example of that would be Thomas Decker, who famously wrote, you know, early modern plays too. Um, he attended a bear baiting and watched a bunch of men go into the pit and whip Monsieur Hunks. And Monsieur Hunks, you know, was one of the celebrity bears. And he comments, this is kind of interesting and, and speaks to one of our earlier points, I think. He comments that Monsieur Hunks is old. He says he looks very old. You know, he looks decrepit. And it's heartbreaking to watch him standing on his hind legs and to watch these men whipping him and he's crying out as if he's in pain and Decker says you know in that moment Monsieur Hunks reminded me of a man like so it seems really cruel and unreasonable to be punishing this creature in this way you know just for our entertainment for the entertainment of humans when really the creature is much like us there's a moment of identification in the pamphlet that I think is really interesting so that's a reaction to bear baiting that kind of took me by surprise there are more that suggest that, you know, bear baiting is just good fun. There are probably more pamphlets and documents that suggest that. But these that don't are really striking. Um, a lot of them have a religious reason for not wanting people to enjoy bear baiting. But the religious reason is, is not what we might expect. It's not about harming animals because animals were not thought to have souls during the Renaissance. You know, they were considered expendable in some ways compared to people. I mean, you would keep a bear alive because it was good for entertainment um, and, and earned money, but animals didn't have the same, um, they weren't considered the same importance, the same level of importance as, as human beings were. So the religious sorts, when they detracted, when they decided, you know, people shouldn't participate in bear baiting, it was often because they didn't want bear baiting to happen on certain days of the week, like Sunday. You know, they'd say, well, there was a bear baiting on Sunday, so now horrible things are going to happen. So you can't do it on Sunday. It's not so much that you're worried about the health of the bears or, you know, the animals. You're worried about the religious aspect and how this might affect our souls as people who attend the bear baiting. But like I said, you get these occasional pieces like Deckers that literally seem to be worried about the animals. And, you know, I think that's really striking. So those are probably my favorite reactions to read. Uh, the ones that suggest that maybe bear baiting is problematic because it does seem radical for the Renaissance, a time in which animals were thought to exist for human use on some level. But there's all kinds, you know, there are more like the Lanham letter that suggests that bear baiting is, is really great entertainment, probably. Caitlin, you mentioned a relationship between bear baiting and theater and since you know, you're talking about the entertainment value of this spectacle. Maybe you could expand a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah I, I certainly can. So theater, this is really interesting. There is a relationship between bear baiting and theater. Uh, they both in London took place at Bankside, that area where everybody went to gamble. And it was kind of an area where things that weren't supposed to happen in London or weren't as ethical happened. So you'd have the prostitution, you have bear baiting, you have theater. It's just kind of a naughty place. And so the bear baiting pit, you know, would be close to the theaters. Like it's the exact same area. The proximity is, is pretty serious. And, you know, there's an article out uh, about bear baiting that I, I found online when I first got interested in this. And they called bear baiting Shakespeare's biggest competition, right? 
And I think that's very apt because it was the same audience in a lot of cases that went to the theater and then turned around and went to the bear baiting. And I think there's a relationship between the two for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, sometimes the theaters, like the bear baiting ring, the bear garden is what they would call it, would be managed by the same person who managed a theater. So, you know, there's a clear relationship there. Um, there were some theaters like The Hope where they would take the stage out on certain nights of the week and then there's the pit where the stage was and the bears would perform perform that night and then you put the stage back and you might have a play there the next night so some of those theaters you know they actually did both uh, both kinds of spectacle and the bear gardens are shaped in sort of a circular format they look like elizabethan theaters it's like a big circle so it, you can understand how one could become the other, right? So there is a clear relationship. I also think too of certain moments in Shakespeare, like the, the moment in A Winter's Tale where somebody's chased off the stage by a bear. It's very famous, you know, exit pursued by a bear um, is a stage direction that shows up in that play. And I can't help but wonder, did they use a real bear for that production? Because the bear would have been so close. You could use a bear, they were trained. Um, and I don't think Elizabethan audiences would have been impressed by a guy in a bear suit. I don't, because they can go across the street and see a bear for real. So, you know, you have to wonder about these relationships between the theaters and the bear baiting pits. Sometimes it wasn't positive. There's a note in the 1590s from an anonymous complainer who loved the bear baiting pits that the theaters, he says the theaters ought to be shut down on certain nights of the week or not, you know, not putting on plays every night because it's taking money away from the bear baiting pits. So there was a concern occasionally that, you know, maybe the theaters were doing slightly better at certain points, or it seems like that might've been a concern. Uh, but yes, I mean, there's a very, very interesting relationship between those two types of entertainment. Um, the audiences, people think were similar for both. That but, is you know, so interesting to think yeah. that it's the same audience that's, you know, seeing Hamlet and then, yeah. trotting across to see and I, yeah. I wonder you know the so early modern drama has its roots in in you know morality plays among other things this sort yeah. of sense of yeah. like a moral spectacle and yet in some ways the bear baiting is as you put it just good fun is anyone seeing bear baiting as a moral you know like as a kind of a moral drama i think well, my sense is no. It'd be a really interesting, you know, thing if I could find something that suggested that they did for some reason. But my sense is that they, they used it as good entertainment. It was great for gambling. People loved gambling. They would bet on who was going to win. That was a big part of this. Um, I think the, the closest thing I've found to morality and bear baiting is probably a reaction like Thomas Decker's, which is not exactly the same thing, but, you know, he's questioning whether bear baiting ought to even be happening um, because the bear is more similar to human beings than people want to admit. And that makes it kind of maybe unethical to, to treat it that way. But as far as like understanding the bear, the act of bear baiting as a, a kind of moral tale or moral performance, I kind of don't think so. I really think it was just, you know, good fun and the animals were thought of as being there to entertain people. You know, I, I'm familiar with these images of uh, bear leaders. These are more from the 17th, 18th yeah. century, but it's, you know, usually in English print culture, you see an image of a guy who's sort of clearly marked as French or Italian and he's, 
got like a bear. Often they're dressed in the same outfit. Like oh, yeah. the man, the bear leader, and the bear yeah. are both wearing like yeah. a, a wow. you know a frock yeah. coat. Yeah, and he'll often be holding the bear by the hand, and it's like the bear is almost a little child or something. Yeah. So clearly, there were people who had relationships with these bears, right? Right. And, right. I mean, what do we hear from those people or what do we know about them? It's hard to say. I'd love to know more about them. That's something that I, it's kind of murky. I've not been able to find a whole lot about the people who handled the bears. There are references to them and, and they call them bear handlers or something to that effect. Bear leaders. I think even in the Renaissance, I took a note of that the other day. Um, or bear, but bear wards. I, yeah, bear wards. Bear wards. Yeah, yeah it's, that's the term. <laughs> bear wards. That's it. So because I looked, I was like, what were these people called? And um, they're called bear wards. So oh, it's, it's, it's interesting, but we don't know, at least from what I could tell when I was reading, I, I don't know how much we really know about their relationships with the bears. We know that they tended to the bears, that they cared for them and that they managed them. Um, but we, we don't really know that much about their intimate relationships with the bears. And I would love to know that because I'm always really mostly interested in what people felt their relationship to animals was during the Renaissance. That's kind of what my, my dissertation work was on. So I'd love to know about what these bear wards felt their relationship to individual bears was, but um, it's kind of unclear. There's not a lot about that. Um, but I, I imagine it must have been intimate because the bears did live for a while. You know, they lived lo much longer lives than the dogs. They became famous. Someone was taking care of them um, and spending time with them. So they were supposedly trained as well. I think there was a serious relationship between whoever was managing the bears and the bears themselves. There has to have been. But, you know, I'm not really sure what the details of that were. If it's like other animals that in the period, there is, there's got to be a close relationship because you constantly yeah. hear about, you know, how the goat herd needs to be like a goat. Uh, yeah. or, you know, like yeah. goat, goat-ish. And, uh, you know, horse, the horse training stuff is, all about uh, that so close connection and like yeah. adapting your body yeah. to the body of the horse and so yeah. like we yeah. could use those like if that is true then there's yeah. an uh, there's a missing literature of the of the bear ward yeah you yeah. mentioned baiting of ape or monkey in the in the yeah. bear baiting arena we we actually talked briefly about that when we did our little episode on uh, uh apes and monkeys yeah. and yeah. they're there i mean there's that uh, that sort of anthropomorphic idea which it seems like bears themselves are one of these animals that is often treated as similar to human in some yeah. way. Yeah, I think that's 100% true. They are. They are there. I think it's partially because they can they can stand upright. Um, there's a certain for Elizabethan audiences, there was a certain similarity, not just for Decker. He's not the only one who ever commented on that. I think it was actually kind of accepted that the bear was a stand in for a person. And I, I partly wonder, and I think I'm not the only one who wonders this. Uh, some, some of the materials, the secondary materials I've read indicate this too. Part of the reason that bear baiting was so exciting for audiences is that the bear is a stand in for a human being. So it's, you can't necessarily have a human being enter the pit and get tied up and attacked by dogs, but this is a substitute. So it allows people to sort of imagine that maybe they're watching a human fight off dogs. You know, they're imagining something even more brutal than what they're actually seeing. But I think the bear is a stand-in for, for humans. Yeah. 
I mean, that's certainly the case in the Middle Ages. There is quite a bit of evidence that bears were considered animals that exist in that sort of liminal zone between the human and bestial. There's and, and specifically in a sexual context that yes, that yeah. male bears are very libidinous and they seek out human women. They're attracted to human women. And then there are all of these bear human hybrids running around. They tend to be heroes. And, <laughs> um, you know, there's this one French historian, Michel Pastoreau, who's got this whole theory about the bear is kind of like the personification or the embodiment of the pagan forces of, northern europe and it has to kind of battle the the christian lion and, oh my gosh. Um, anyway i'm not sure how wow wow how, That's... Um, how credulous we should be about that but there you know there definitely is evidence of pre-christian bear cults in europe and the bear has this kind of when it's standing on its back legs it you know bears can also be trained to dance or yes you know yes. do other kinds of entertainment activities so yeah that aren't necessarily natural behaviors for them. Yeah, the, the bit about the bears um, fathering human children, I, I had heard a bit about that, the hybrid children. Um, I, it's very interesting. I think it's more of a Middle Ages thing, but it's very interesting. And it does, I want to say in the Renaissance, it's not a bear, but there's, there's a really terrifying pamphlet that I read that talks about one of the dogs getting involved with a woman and producing a hybrid. So they did fear that that kind of thing could happen. And I, I think it's, it's scary because it suggests that the human and animal are closer physically than, than people wanted to think about, right? You know, we know that a human and animal can't produce a, a offspring, but I think people in the pre-modern era weren't so sure. And that's not compatible. The idea that they could produce offspring is not compatible with the idea that humans are naturally superior to beasts. I mean, to be physically similar enough to produce a hybrid, you're kind of the same, right? Or you're close to the same. One of those species is not superior to the other. Because, I mean, if you can produce a creature together, I think that sort of negates that sense of superiority. So I think there's fear. You know, there was always, certainly in the Renaissance, there's there's fear of, you know, a, a beast copulating with a woman and producing a child um, yeah. of some sort. Yeah, yeah we, we've, ta we've talked a little before about hybridity and the kind of valence of that sense that things might be a little bit more fluid um, than, yeah. than we would, would expect them to be. And it certainly cuts into that. So in, it cuts into the anthropocentrism that says, you know, rigorous in a sort of Thomas Aquinas way, animals have no souls. They're, you know, like, yeah. this is okay. It's completely separate. Because yeah. they're also thinking, you know, that... <laughs> That that could be me, or that could be something that's connected to me in different ways. Right, right. We think about the the, the cruelty of blood sports, but the human versus human cruelty in this period is greater in some ways, right? And the like the the the, the kind of cruelty enacted in public executions is mm -hmm. every bit as mm -hmm. as awful as what is being inflicted on oh. uh, animals. In fact, the two of them get compared sometimes. Like if you're reading, you know, a, a document about bear baiting, it's not uncommon for people to point out, oh, you know, this is not execution, but when the bear is being whipped by people in the pit, you'll see a pamphleteer say, it reminded me of the boys at the whipping posts. You know, the reaction was the same and maybe not quite as brutal, but it reminded me of that. And for them to note, it's not quite as brutal as, as the boys being whipped at the whipping post for stealing something or whatever their crime was. 
um, that that's pretty serious. I think it suggests that the human on human violence was more intense even maybe than what was put on the animals. You know, maybe the animals were more valuable because they were imported. I don't know. You know, I think that's their their entertainment pieces, and uh, a thief who gets whipped at the whipping post is not valuable. It's hard to say, but there's a relationship. But if you think of a really I don't know, high profile, maybe even high prestige type of execution. Sure. If if you read the descriptions, the really sort of gut churning descriptions of drawing and quartering. Yeah. You know, yeah. suddenly bear baiting seems pretty tame. Sure. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I think, you know, I mean, there's no, there's nothing like that in the bear baiting pit. It's gross, but there's nothing like drawing and quartering. No. And one thing that you mentioned right at the beginning, you said something about people are still doing this today. And you also mentioned that this wasn't outlawed until 1830. So tell us a little bit about, I think the most uncomfortable subject of all is how this, you know, when we talk about it in the Tudor period, oh, they were so violent, you know, their regard for human and animal life was was not equal to our elevated, you know, modern morality, but, I, I suspect you're about to burst that bubble for us. Sure. I, I, the truth is that bear baiting still happens um, and it's legal. I notice it's legal in parts of the Middle East. Um, it's legal in South Carolina still, technically, um, no. if you go and look. And I, I actually read an article that indicates that it happens, some version of it happens there you know, every so often. So it's not illegal there. And there are places where it is technically not supposed to happen and it happens anyway. There's a lot of bear baiting in Russia. I know that people have tried to, you know, people from Western Europe have tried to go into Russia and save the bears and take them to sanctuaries in Western Europe. So, you know, to save them from bear baiting. And it's still the exact same sport where they're tied to a stake or something like it and attacked by other animals. I mean, it's it's the same as what the Elizabethans did. So the South Carolina was probably the biggest shock for me, just that we have this in the USA and it's kind of all right, you know, or they, they think it's okay there. But it shouldn't be a shock because people, you know, that's an entertainment that, you know, people liked in the past. And I'm not sure how much people really change. You know, I, I think we, we try to be more environmentally conscious and aware of animal rights now, but it doesn't surprise me that it still exists in certain corners of the world, I think. I wonder what the, the spectators expect to get and think they're getting out of the experience changes because the uh, cultures are very different. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and if, if there is this kind of essential aspect to it, then that's yeah. just a, a love of violence that might extend as a thread throughout history. But there's so much other stuff that's happening in the Elizabethan bear baiting arena. Right. I wonder what's happening in, in Russia or, you know, in the parts of the United States that are still allowing these kinds of activities. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think obviously it was a big part of the Elizabethan culture in a way that it's not a big part of our culture. And I, and I think too, that we have a totally different perspective, as you say. I think that's the part that is kind of alarming about bear baiting still taking place, is we do have a different perspective. I don't think people fundamentally change all that much, but we have a lot more education about, you know, how to treat animals the right way, and it's kind of considered immoral. I think in a lot of uh, situations, people wouldn't be impressed with, you know, harming animals. Maybe, I don't want to use the word immoral in a religious sense, but people think it's not. They think it's not acceptable to treat animals the way that they were treated in the bear baiting pits. That's generally accepted now. So it is a society 
that's going to see those new bear-baiting pits that's not coming from the same perspective on some level as the Elizabethans. So it's hard to say what they're getting out of it. I mean, I, I do wonder that. I guess they must love violence, certainly, and that they would have in common with the people of the past. But they, they also, I don't know, perhaps it makes them feel powerful. It's hard to get into their heads, you know, but I think there is more shame about it because certainly there aren't big public bear baiting events, even in places where it's allowed now. It seems to be small audiences kind of hush hush and people, you know, write nasty articles about it when it does happen. I found some article with pictures from a bear baiting in South Carolina and the, the comments, you know, on the piece were furious and the article itself was very critical of what had happened. So it seems like it's kind of, you know, under the table now, the bear baiting, even in places where it's technically allowed, it's a smaller event. It's not gathering the huge crowds that it did in Elizabethan England. And there's a shame around it. So I guess these people watch it because they enjoy watching violence, maybe the same way you might enjoy cockfighting if you're that kind of person. But it's not the big kind of spectacle that it was in the past. It's kind of a, a dirty little secret, it seems like. It's interesting that you mentioned cockfighting because I don't know whether there's specifically in Islam, whether there's specifically hadith against um, bear baiting, but there is specifically a hadith against cockfighting. Interesting. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah. that. That specifically prescribes setting one beast against another. Yeah. Um, wow. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, that it's still practiced in you know, some parts of the world where Islam is the majority religion. And yes, yes. I think probably any, I, I am not a scholar of Islam, but certainly I think it's a fairly widely understood precept in Islam that this would be unethical and, and mm. against sort of the wholeness of creation or something. And, and it surprises right. me too that actually Elizabethans and, and people in the Tudor period didn't make that connection. There was right. a sort of, I mean, Ian has talked a lot about this sort of emerging appreciation of nature and this interesting sort of development of what you might call proto-natural history yeah. that is part of a larger cultural shift towards understanding the, the animals of creation, mm -hmm. not as sort of uh, cryptic symbols for some something else, but rather interesting in and of them own, their own right because they are god's creatures because they are right. evidence of the sort of marvelousness of creation yes and that's where things get confusing for me as a reader because I, I totally agree with you it seems like there's a disconnect where people will acknowledge that animals are god's creatures and then they they're happy to put them in the pit and and the people who did decide that they didn't care for bear baiting this was often the justification they would say we don't have a right to treat God's creatures this way. I mean, that, that's a very common reason that people would not like the bear baiting pits. Um, but but it, does, it does seem like there was a disconnect because some spectators would realize that, that, you know, they shouldn't, they would think, oh, we maybe shouldn't be harming God's creatures. Um, but then most of them went on doing it you know, like they didn't care. So it's hard to say, I mean, it was such a popular sport. You have to figure that most people weren't thinking about that that much or you know we're thinking selectively in some way it's it's interesting you would think that they would care more that animals were considered god's creatures people still compartmentalize when it comes to animals i think in all yeah. sorts of ways yeah. so it looks like we're running a kind of running low on time and i wanted to make sure we got a chance to ask you caitlin how you how you got attracted to 
I mean, not just this topic, but also sort of animal studies. I mean, what is your sure. what is your personal journey to this material? Sure. So it's kind of an interesting story. When I was a, a sophomore in college, I got I got involved. I got to take a class on the environment in the Renaissance, and I thought it was totally fascinating. And animal studies is not the same thing, obviously, as environmental studies, but there's a relationship. So in that class, I got really interested in the animals within the environment. That you know, we'd read a text about the environment, and I always noticed the animals. That was kind of my primary focus. And I read a couple of pieces that I felt portrayed animals as musicians. I got really stuck on this idea um, because I could tell that animal language was something that people in the Renaissance were interested in, that you know they, they wondered if animals could have their own language. That's something that comes up sometimes, you know, and whether they communicated in the ways that people do. Um, and at some point, I went from being interested in animal language to being interested in animals as musicians because you know, I liked reading about birds or bees. And I know in the Middle Ages, bees are not quite technically animals, but they're non-human bodies that I was interested in. So I thought about birds and bees as performers, as musicians, natural musicians. And I wondered if maybe their musicianship was a way of communicating that. If maybe if people in the Renaissance paid attention to their music, they might see them as communicating through it. So it was a way of marrying that animal language interest to the animal music interest, which is a bit strange, but I ultimately came to a conclusion that I felt certain Renaissance thinkers, certainly not all of them, but certain Renaissance thinkers felt that birds and bees were speaking a kind of divine language because music was the language of the heavens. It's the music of the spheres. So they're speaking a divine language and that perhaps suggests that animals could have souls, that they might have a unique relationship with the divine that humans didn't necessarily have, which could sort of upset the human animal binary, certainly. So uh, I just became obsessed with this project and part of it figured in my dissertation ultimately because I, I was so obsessed with it. So I worked on it for years i applied to grad school saying i wanted to do a project on animal language and particularly animals as musicians that shifted somewhat uh you know i ultimately did more animal performers and i was always interested in animal language but it's not just musicians the dissertation um, but i did ultimately write a dissertation on animals that focus never really shifted i maybe left the bees behind in certain ways but i i always you know remained interested in performing animals, which is what performing, you know, the bear baiting pits, that's what they were. It was an animal performance, an unpleasant one, but still a performance. So that's kind of how it all started. Language and then music as animal performance, and then ultimately more animal performers. So here we are. Well, thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today and to be of our course. very, very first guest. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thank you. It's really amazing to be on. It was so great to hear about your work on these bears. A little disturbing, yes. <laughs> um, but I think it adds to our ongoing conversation about how our study of animals helps us understand better our being as humans. So, so thank you. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Look, again, thank you for having me. It was so great to get to talk about it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating online. You may also go to our website at realfantasticbeasts.com where you can find show notes, images, merchandise, and more. 
We look forward to seeing you in two weeks when we talk about the very first dogs. Thank <laughs> you.